Somebody knocking? No. No. Okay. Good afternoon and welcome to today's class. Today we're going to be, this, as we begin, the new book of the Torah, the fifth and final book of the Torah, the book of Deuteronomy. And this week we are going to learn about the book, the book of Deuteronomy, but even more so the beginning, the rice, the first few words of the book of Deuteronomy. They say a story about once this guy, this newly immigrant, comes to the land of Israel and he's walking down the street in the summertime and he sees a beautiful peach tree. And he decides, you know, look, a beautiful peach tree. Let me go up and climb and get some peaches for myself. Meanwhile, a policeman who was also a new immigrant and knew the guy from the old country, they learned in yeshiva together. And he sees this fellow climbing up the tree and taking some peaches. So the policeman looks at him and says, what's going on over here? Don't you remember we learned in yeshiva one of the Ten Commandments are you're not allowed to steal? The fellow taking the peaches off the tree says, look at the beauty of the land of Israel. You go and collect some peaches, and you can also get a Dvar Torah, words of Torah on the side as well. <laughs> Whenever we talk about, you know, the way God created this universe, he made it a very, had a good sense of humor. The very fact that God created the fact that men and women should live together when they come from two opposites, or people coming from all different sides of the universe trying to work out things together, the very concept of people working together when they come from different personalities, different points of view. How does that all work out? Like once this very wise man said, he says, what's the, ap the actual, um, what's the right approach to a happy marriage? Is that we agree to disagree. Yeah, you have two individuals that. who disagree probably on almost everything, <laughs> or they look at it and if you think about it a moment, you ask a person, what attracted you to one another when you got married is what they're arguing about right now. He said, but you know all about it. Yeah, but then was them, now is now. And they come up with all different excuses. But the reality is that the two opposites is what attract. It's the concept that we're all different. But the reality of each person being who they are. Oh. Each person being who they are, coming into the world with their own set of ideals and principles and beautiful uh, talents and gifts that they have. And that's what it is that we have to be able to sit together, two people coming together and living life together and not clashing and making sure that they don't bang each other up or to be able to not get into a fight or whatever it may be without banging themselves into the wall. But the end of the day is, but that was part of God's sense of humor to take two individuals, a man from one side of the world, a woman from the other side of the world, when I mean the world, not necessarily geographically, but they come from different perspectives and they live together a happy life. But how many times we ask the question, and how many times you ask yourself, I have to bite my lip, not to say anything. I want to be able to say something, but I'm going to hold myself in. Mm -hmm. How many times do we say, if I would only be able to tell this person something without getting into a fight, and knowing that for the next two weeks he's not going to talk to Mary, or she's not going to talk to me, I'll get silent treatment, whatever it may be. <laughs> How to be able to create this individual to be able to say something, but at the same time not be affect and not affect the relationship. And it's not only about a husband and wife, but it can also be about children. You want to be able to reprimand them, but still love them. You want to be able to reprimand them, but at the same time... You know, get them out of bed, but not that they'll hear an argument about it for the next two weeks. How come you woke me up early and therefore I don't want to talk to you or whatever it may be. <laughs> By Jewish people, this concept is even more important and even more of a, uh, a question. Because this is not only a nice idea to be able to tell somebody off, you know, that we like to do. Mm. But this is actually a mitzvah. 
The mitzvah tells us that we have to rebuke a person when we see them doing something wrong. Just like it's a mitzvah to put on tefillin, just like it's a mitzvah to keep Shabbos, there's a mitzvah that if I see somebody doing something wrong, I should have to rebuke them. So how is it possible? And how, where do we find a way that we should be able to rebuke somebody accordingly that it should be done right? In fact, this is probably the only mitzvah that the Talmud asks, how is it possible for a person to do? It's probably impossible for a person to do the Talmud, uses the terminology. The Talmud says, what happens? How do I know if I see somebody doing something wrong, I should rebuke them? That I'm obligated to rebuke them? So the Talmud says, because it says in the verse in the book of Leviticus, rebuke, rebuke, you fellow. Rabbi Tarifon says, is it possible, can you find me somebody in this generation that's willing to accept rebuke? He says, listen here, you're going to tell a person... You know, you have something stuck between, he gives it like it's in a metaphor. He says, if you tell a person, you have uh, something stuck between your teeth, you know, that which is something we can barely close your mouth and nobody would see it, what would he tell you? You have a beam in front of your face, meaning you're telling me about my issues? you got a bigger issue. Who are you to tell me anything? <laughs> That's usually what happens when you tell somebody a rebuke. Like, who are you to tell me what to do when I did something wrong? So if you start rebuking somebody on small infractions, what are they going to start saying? Who oh, are you to tell me about a small infraction that I did? You're a big know-it-all. You do it. You want me to tell me everything that you did? And therefore, Rabbi Elazar ben Azariah says, "Can you please find me somebody in this generation or a generation that will actually be willing to accept rebuke?" So what is it? How do we actually create? And how do we have a level that we can have some type of rebuke, but at the same time, get along with one another? And probably, you know, many times, as we said before, we want to say rebuke, but we bite our lip and say, you know what, I'm better off not saying it. What's it going to help me if I don't say it? I see somebody doing wrong and I say, you know, and if I say something, what am I going to do, change it? And there's a concept which is I'd rather the person do something wrong unknowingly then do something wrong, knowing that he's doing something wrong. So I'd rather not say anything, and the better the person do something inadvertently than advertently. So where do I create that balance? When do I decide, and when is it the right time to rebuke, and when is it a purposeful rebuke, and what is it all about? And we're going to analyze this question by looking at the beginning of this week's Torah reading, and looking at the story of Moshe when it comes to the end of his life. And over here, if we look at the book of the Chumash Devarim, the book of Deuteronomy, all of a sudden, the book of Deuteronomy begins with words of rebuke. Not only does it begin with words of rebuke, but the first three Torah readings, Devarim, Ve'eschanon, and Ekev for the next three weeks, are words of rebuke that Moshe gives to the Jewish people. Why is it that right before Moshe is passing, he decides all of a sudden he's going to give the Jewish people rebuke? You know, generally when people pass away, they want people to remember them in a good way, especially at the end of their life. And therefore, when a person talks, you know, at the end of their life, they're this cuddly bubby or this cuddly zady, whatever it may be. Why all of a sudden does Moshe, at the end of his life, he waited, he kept it all in his heart until now, and after 40 years of leading the Jewish people, he lets it all out on them. Why all of a sudden now? Even more so. Didn't Moshe know about the mitzvah, about rebuking one fellow, that if it is a mitzvah, that you should rebuke somebody for doing something wrong? And he truly believed that the Jewish people were doing something wrong. Why did he wait until 40 years if there was a mitzvah for him to do it earlier? So let's look at the book of Deuteronomy a little deeper and try to understand what's going on here. The book of Deuteronomy, if you look at it, is very different than all the other four books of the Torah. 
Every other book of the Torah was written in third person. God told Moses what to say, what to write, and Moses, and Moses wrote it down. All of a sudden, we come to the book of Deuteronomy, and it begins with the following words. These are the words that Moshe said to the Jewish people. Now it's in first person, not in third person. In the words of the sages, the first four books, Moshe said, dictated by God. In the fifth book of Deuteronomy, Moshe said it, so to speak, on his own. Not that he made it up on his own, but he became a channel of God's word. And what he said was his divine inspiration from what God told him to say, but not dictating those words. And therefore, it's said in first person. So what happened here? It seems like that after the first four books, or some type of metamorphosis happened to Moses. That he changed from being a human being, and now he became this godly person who was able to become the words of the Torah. But at the same time, if you look at the fifth book of the Torah, where Moshe gathers the Jewish people, and instead of giving them greetings and blessings, which he does do at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, but he begins and starts telling them rebuke, which is something the Jewish people haven't heard for 40 years. This Moshe, the Jewish people, the, the one who took the Jews out of Egypt, brought them through the desert, gave them the manna, took them through all the trials and tribulations, the defender of the Jewish people, whenever God wanted to destroy the Jewish people, he stood up to pray and said, God, how dare you? And he's the same guy that all of a sudden is coming along and saying, you guys are a bunch of terrible beings. And he starts telling them not only one Torah reading, but a second Torah reading and a third Torah reading. And Moshe's enumerating all the different episodes. You could see that he had it on his chest for the past 40 years. He loads it all on them and say, unloads everything on them and say, where were you guys? This is the way you behaved. How did you dare behave all these times? And he starts to go through it. And if you look in the first Torah, first verse on this week's Torah reading, Moshe begins and he says, these are the words that Moshe spoke to the Jewish people on the other side of the Jordan, in the Midbar Desert, in the plains, by the place of those seeds, by Poran, by Tophel, Lavan, Chaseris, and these I've mentioned five different places. The Rajban, who is a commentator from the, uh, from the Bali Atosvos from the 11th century, said, and explains that these are just geographic locations of where the Jewish people traveled. And Moshe is reminding them of all the different places where they lived. And he's using these terminologies to remind them that they were on the other side of the Jordan, not yet in the land of Israel. But Rashi, the foremost commentator on the Torah, the grandfather of the Rajbam, also an 11th century scholar, also says as follows. And he says, in fact, these locations are cryptic words that Moshe is telling the Jewish people. And every single one of these locations are locations where something happened to the Jewish people. So, for example, he says, by Midbar in the desert, he reminds them of their first complaint when they were standing. And they said, what did you bring us out into the desert to kill us all? By the reeds, he's reminding them by the Sea of Reeds when they were about to cross the sea. And Moshe says, let's go. And all of a sudden they're complaining, why did you take us here to kill us in the sea? And then every one of these places that Moshe mentions are places where episodes of their complaining happened in the past. Now over here, what's Rashi telling us? Rashi is basically telling us that in this first verse, these are the words that Moshe tells him. That means this is five weeks before Moshe's passing. He decides to gather the Jewish people together and say, guys, remember 40 years ago we were standing in the desert, you were a bunch of imbeciles. And he goes on to tell them how terrible they were. And he, not only that, is this the time right before his passing to start telling them how terrible they are? To make matters even worse, or even more questionable, 
The generation that he's talking to is not the generation that did the things wrong. Because if you recall, because of the sin of the spies, the generation that made all the problems, they died out in the desert. This is a whole new generation that's going into the land of Israel. So if he was rebuking them for what they did wrong, they didn't do anything. He's preaching to the choir. These guys are a new generation. He did nothing wrong. And if they really did something wrong, where were you when they did it? You should have told them they did something wrong, like the Torah obligates us to rebuke somebody when they do something wrong. So over here we know, and add even more so if you want to take it even a step further, they died out already. Why did Moshe let them die without repenting? If they did something wrong, he should have told them that they should be able to repent before their death. So why over here all of a sudden does Moshe tell the Jewish people? So Rashi continues to explain that Moshe actually learned from great people before him. Who were the great people before him? And if you look at the great forefathers, starting from Jacob, Jacob calls out his children right before his passing. He gathers them around to give them blessings. But right before that, he calls Reuven. He said, you did something wrong. And he rebukes him for what he did wrong, Shimon and Levi. And he tells his children off as well as blesses them before they did something wrong. And what's the reason? Why would a person do something uh, why would a person say or rebuke his children only before his passing? And Rashi says a very interesting thing. If I were to rebuke a child while they're still young, while there's still time, they might take it the wrong way. And because of that, they either may take revenge from somebody because of it, or they won't talk to the person who rebuked them for a long time and they won't accept it properly. Like this, number one, you don't hurt the relationship. Number two, is if when you rebuke somebody, what are you saying? You're basically revealing something wrong that they did. They now become embarrassed of that thing they did wrong, and they might not want to face you. And therefore, you he held from saying that rebuke until this passing, so the person should not feel embarrassed in front of him of what they did wrong. And again, the concept is not to stir up the argument even more. When the rebuke is, it should be done in a way that this should only bring things to a settlement, not create more anxiety about it. Other commentators explain and say that the very fact that Moshe was rebuking the Jewish people here, he wasn't really rebuking them for what they did wrong, because the reality is it wasn't these people that did it. But in fact, he was forewarning for what was going to happen in the future generations, being that now they were going to enter the land of Israel, and he did not want them to repeat the same mistakes they've done in the past. Therefore, he brings the past only as an historic reference. This is what happened in the past. And therefore, I don't want you to recur to this should be a reoccurring theme. And therefore, he says, be careful when you go into the land of Israel. He was warning them about what may happen in the past. Now, again, this was, in fact, more important to tell a person this before they die. Because when a, before a person dies, people are more in tune they're more open to listen to the person who's not well and he's passing. And therefore, Moshe felt this is an auspicious time that I can encourage them to tell them something that should have an everlasting impression. So therefore, he mentions all the interesting things that happened in the past. And he continues to tell them these things. And he mentions them only that they should know for the future how they should behave. So this explains the first question. Why all of a sudden now? But our second question, which is that if it was an obligation according to the Torah, that Moshe should rebuke the Jewish people, that when you see somebody doing something wrong, when you see something, say something, where was Moshe for 40 years to say something to the Jewish people? 
Why? When they sinned with the golden calf, didn't rebuke them. When they sinned with the manna, didn't rebuke them. When they sinned with the spies and all the other things. In fact, he was the defender of the Jewish people. He came to God and said, you can't kill them. They did nothing wrong. Or even if they did something wrong, they did. I mean that he was always looking for excuses for them. So what is it? What's that obligation for rebuke? And seemingly, the mitzvah of rebuke is not a voluntarily uh, obligation. It's not the Torah says, if you'd like to, you can rebuke them. The Torah says very clearly in the book of Leviticus, do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your friend, so you should not have a sin. And the commentators explain that what does this mean? This mitzvah tells us a three-part mitzvah. This mitzvah includes, number one, mitzvahs which have to do between man and his friend and man and a god. If somebody hurts your feelings, say something. Don't allow that hate to build up within yourself because what happens is that, 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 um, that type of animosity continues to build and to grow and to all of a sudden create anger. And what does that cause? The second part of the verse, to hate your friend. That means by not rebuking, you are now going to the next abrogation, which is you're hating the person because of it. That's when it comes to mitzvahs which are between you and your friend. And then when it comes to mitzvahs between you and God, what does God say? If you see somebody doing something wrong and you don't say something, you are the one that sins because you didn't rebuke them. <laughs> so over here, seemingly, Moshe had not only an obligation to say, oh, let me just, you know, bite my lip and not say something. In fact, he had an obligation to them because basically he was sinning because of it. Moshe over here is saying, by him holding it in, seemingly he was holding a grudge. The very fact he had to get rid of it now. As Nachmanides, and it's brought in code of Jewish law, that if a person something does wrong to him, he should clearly, explicitly state it and not hold a grudge against the person because the moment you're holding a grudge for what the person did wrong, you think you're the big guy. By not saying anything, you're in fact doing something worse because since you're holding a grudge. And you're not revealing what's bothering you. Because if you would reveal what's bothering you, then you'd get it off your chest, you'll come to terms about it, and you move on. But the very fact that you keep on harping about it, and you keep on thinking about it, keep on talking about it, what are you doing? You're in fact creating more animosity. And creating more sin. In fact, if we look at the... Um, we're in the current time of the three weeks. Now we're in the nine days of mourning, the destruction of the temple. And one of the reasons why the destruction of the temple happened was because there was an episode of where two Jews got into a great fight and the sages were sitting there and did not condemn the actions. Even more so, we find in the time of the first temple as well, the very fact that the sages did not condemn the actions of the evildoers of the time, that was considered as if they themselves sinned and therefore they lost that ability to be able to protect the people of their time. So not condemning and standing by idly while something wrong is happening is something which historically we've seen was punishable. And all of a sudden over here, Moshe waits 40 years to be able to tell the Jewish people what they did wrong. He could have got the first generation before they died to be able to teach them and to show them what they did wrong. Why didn't he say anything? Am I looking a little deeper into the story? And of course, taking the Hasidic perspective and the teachings of the Rebbe, and looking at what Rashi tells us just a line afterwards. It helps us understand, number one, the story of Moses but gives us a whole new window in what does it mean and how we go about rebuking another person. And Rashi says as follows. In the, sec in the fourth verse of this week's Torah reading, 
after he enumerates, Moshe enumerates different places of, of the issues that they had with the Jewish people, rebuking them of what they've done wrong, the Torah uses the terminology, and it was 40 years after they killed Sichon and Og, which a few weeks ago we read about them in the Torah reading, which they were two big nations, powerful nations that Moshe conquered, fought them off, and protected the Jewish people from, and gave them their land. Only after those 40 years, after the 40 years and after that episode, does Moshe now begin to rebuke the Jewish people. Why did he wait after 40 years? But then the Torah says, not only after 40 years, but after he killed the people of Sichon and Oak and gave their land to the Jews. And over here, Rashi is telling us something very interesting. He says, because if Moshe would rebuke them beforehand, they would say, what good did Moshe do for us? What did he do for us? He took us through the sea, but maybe we would die out in the desert. Look, the miracle, look, the spies died, Korach died. What benefit did Moshe do? What kind of goodness did he do? Only after Moshe waged war against the people of Sichon and Oak and gave them the land of Sichon and Oak and he showed that he was kind and good to them, now he had justification to be able to rebuke them. What is this telling us? An unbelievable thing. There's nothing worse than holding back animosity and holding it in without saying it. And when you see somebody that's valuable in your life, a great person, whether it's your spouse, your child, doing something wrong, you want to say something. You want to be able to give them the tools and show them what they're doing is wrong. And you want to be able to rebuke them that they should recognize and realize what they're doing wrong. But what did Moses do? He bit his lip. He was quiet. He didn't say anything. He didn't say what was on his heart. Why? Because Moses knew a fundamental understanding and rule in critique, which is the only critique you can give if it's out of love. That it is impossible to create anything out of the critique. You will gain nothing from the critique if it's not out of love. Until you actually convince the individual, or unless that person knows that what you're saying is out of love, your critique is not only not going to help you, but it can make things worse. <laughs> and in order for you to make sure that you give a proper critique, you need to know that it's coming from love, and the person that you're giving it to needs to know that it's coming out of love, and you're coming because you love that person and it's for his benefit. For 40 years, the Jewish people were making problems. There were trials and tribulations that they had throughout the time. They came out of Egypt. They couldn't find themselves in the desert. They were upset about the change from Egypt to the desert. They complained about the menu. They complained about the food. They complained about everything. And then all of a sudden, they were told them going into the land of Israel. They didn't like that. And they had to wander for 40 years. There was yet nothing that may have shown Moses' love for the Jewish people. They could have, any person could have justified it and said, hey, he's doing it for himself. What are we gaining from it? They didn't see any value yet. Even though miraculous events happened. They're supposed to see, that seems like a value. They got the Torah, it looks beautiful. But it still didn't look like it was for their benefit. It could have been for God wanted to show wonders and miracles. They still didn't get anything yet that would convince them, persuade them, change their mind to show that the God really loves them and it's for their benefit. So what does Moshe wait? He waits 40 years. 
40 years until finally he is able to show them, look, I'm conquering the cities of Sichon and Og. I am giving you their land. Over here, every single person in his own way can see that Moshe is not doing it for himself. He's soon going to die. He conquered, he's giving it to them for their benefit. Now, all of a sudden, when he gives them a rebuke, it's accepted. It's understood. It's valued. This critique is something which is accepted. The Medrash, which is a commentator that explains the Torah, says it as follows and puts it in this perspective. He says, you know, if you look, a few weeks ago we had the prophet Bilham, who was a non-Jewish prophet and came and, cursed and blessed the Jewish people when he was supposed to curse them, but because of that he blessed them. <laughs> so the Medrash says, why do you have to have that Moshe should be the one that's rebuking them? And Bilam blessing them. Let Bilam rebuke the Jewish people. And let Moshe bless the Jewish people. Now imagine Bilam comes along and curses. So the Medrash explains. It says, imagine Bilam comes along and curses the Jewish people. You think the Jewish people are going to accept it? The Jewish people can say, that guy hates us anyway. You think, what should we listen to him for? Why should we listen to what he tells us? Why should we accept this critique? He hates us. Are you going to listen to critique from your nemesis? Are you going to listen to critique from somebody that you know doesn't like you? Who is on the opposite team? Of course you're not going to listen to. But Moshe that loves the Jewish people, that the Jewish people know that he loves them, that's who can critique the Jewish people. Because you love the person so much, and because you need to be able to critique the person, therefore it has to come out of love. Because you have to think about it. What is critique all about? What does it mean when a person gives you critique or starts trying to tell you what you did wrong? What is the person doing? There are three things that happen to a person. Why do people get so bothered when people critique them, when people rebuke them? Number one, the moment I'm rebuking you or giving you any type of critique, I'm making an allegation. I am all of a sudden saying you did something wrong. Think about it. Woman, a woman would wake, let's say one spouse tells to another spouse, you know, why do you leave the dishes? Why didn't you clean up after yourself? What is that really saying? Not why didn't you clean up after yourself? You're a lazy good for nothing that you don't even know how to clean up after yourself. Why did I even marry you? It's not saying what you did something wrong. You're telling the individual that you're a faulty individual. You have a problem. And therefore, when the person responds, the person's not going to respond. You know, I had to rush out there if I couldn't wash the dishes. They're saying, this, this other person's looking at me as a fault. Looking at me as an incomplete person, as somebody who has problems. And therefore, what's their automatic reaction going to be? Fight back. Fight back. <laughs> not only fight back, push back. Not only push back, but answer back. And not even allow the critique to even enter them. <laughs> what's number two? What's another problem of critique and rebuke? Critique and rebuke means that I want the person to change. I demand that person change. What's the one thing nobody wants to do? Change. Is change. Yeah. Leave me alone. I was good. I was yesterday. I'm good today. I'm going to be good tomorrow. Leave me alone. What does every person want from the other one? To change. You know what they say? What do they say? Men marry women hoping they won't change. Women marry men hoping they'll change them, right? Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. The way it works, but that doesn't happen. As we know, and all of a sudden, you want me to change? And all of a sudden, what's the person going to do? This whole critique doesn't even get into the ear. Because if it means I'm going to have to do something, if it obligates me, I don't want to listen to it. A third problem is, 
about critique and, uh, and when we talk about critique and rebuke, is saying that something's wrong with you. Not only are you a problem, not only do I want you to change, but there's something wrong with you. Mm-hmm. Because, on the other hand, not only is something wrong with you, but I'm the one that got it right. <laughs> because or else why do I have the right to tell you what to do? So therefore, I'm rebuking you, I'm critiquing you, because you are wrong, and I am right. Always. And that's the way the and that's why the perception comes, and that's why people get so angry. How dare you say I'm wrong? How dare you think I'm doing something wrong? And therefore, we always find, you know, there's a very famous statement that they say. A very famous statement is that people usually separate for the reason why they get married. You know, people get divorced for the reason they get married. That initially, you like that person because of the things, because they're different, because they're unique, and all of a sudden. Once you start seeing it aggravates you or you start rebuking them about it, that's the reason it calls for divorce. And you say, well, didn't you know that's the way I am? But, you know, and so on. And over here, Rashi is coming to tell us something so important in these words. When he tells them that only after the destruction of Sichon and Og, only after Moshe gave them something, was Moshe able to rebuke them. Because over here he says, there's no way that you can critique or rebuke any person or anything without actually knowing that the person knows that it's coming out of love. That in order for a person to remove that wall, that defense, in order for that person to really penetrate what you're saying and make an impact because of your rebuke and critique, you have to know that it's coming out of love. And only once it comes from love will a person change. There's a fascinating story that's said about a great... um, Rebbe by the name of the he was known as the Avas Yisrael. He was the Vishnitzer, the third Vishnitzer Rebbe. He was known as the master of Avas Yisrael. He loved every single Jew. And he was very dedicated to helping every single person in any way possible. And once he was collecting money for a poor family in the middle of the winter that needed food and lodging, whatever it may be. And he goes to one of the wealthy people in town. And this wealthy guy in town was no longer religious. In fact, those days, in the, it was very common that not only did people become secular, but they joined something which was called the masculine, anti-religious people, if you want to call it, the Enlightenment Movement, if you have heard of that. Well, it, you know, today it eventually became the Reform Movement, but against, uh, they stood up and they made big problems for the religious people, whatever it may be. And he went to this fellow's home, and this fellow now was a banker. He ran, he was a manager of a bank. And he went to this fellow's home to visit him. The fellow respectfully opens up the door for the rabbi, welcomes him in his home, brings him into his office, and sits down. And the rabbi sits down and doesn't say a word. The vision of the rabbi, the balab, doesn't say a word. He's sitting there five minutes, ten minutes. Finally, this banker turns to the rabbi and says, you came here for something. Why didn't you say what you hear? Why didn't you speak? He says, you know what? I actually came here because I wanted to do a very important mitzvah. He says, yeah, which mitzvah? He says, I came to do the mitzvah that our sages tell us. That sometimes, just like it's important to say something which is heard, it's just as important not to say something which won't be heard. So therefore, I'm coming here, but I'm not saying anything because I know it won't be heard. (laughs) The banker looks at him and says, come on. 
Why do you accuse me that I won't listen to it? Tell me, maybe I'll listen. She says, no, no, I'm not going to say it because if I say it, then you're not going to listen and it's going to make you, make you feel bad. I'm not going to say it. I just came here. Did I just be quiet? I'm not going to say anything. He says, how do you know I'm not going to listen? Come on, try me, tell me, maybe I'll listen. She says, I'm telling you, I don't want to say it because then I'm going to put you in a guilty conscience and talk. He says, no, 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 tell me, tell me. She says, okay, I'll tell you. You really want to know? I'll tell you. He says, there's this poor family that can't afford to make the mortgage. And the bank wants to take away their home. The bank that you're in charge of wants to take away their home. I want you to forgive them on the mortgage. So the banker looks at him and says, they don't own me the money. They own the bank the money. I can't answer for the bank. I'm just a manager. I just work there. So the Rebbe tells him, you see, I told you I can't tell you. Yeah, I told you you wouldn't be able to listen. Okay, have a nice day. I told you you wouldn't be able to listen. As soon as the rabbi leaves the house, the banker starts thinking to himself. He says, that's terrible, this family. And what do you mean? I'm not going to be able to do it. Over here, I know somebody in dire straits. I'm not, not going to do it. That's why they don't want to tell me. And he took this to heart. And he said, okay, the bank can forgive the loan, but I can pay it up for them. And he went and paid up the loan. Oh, wow. What do we see from over here? It wasn't what he said. It was what he didn't say. And it wasn't about knowing what to say. It was sometimes the feeling that's put into it, that's to show the love for the person that's what brought it about. About 150 years ago, there were two children playing with one another. And these two children were great people. They were children of the fourth Chabad Rebbe, the Rebbe Marash, Rebbe Shmuel. And one child's name was Rabbi Zalman Aaron, and the other child's name was Rabbi Shalom Dovber, who later became the fifth Chabad Rebbe. And as they were child playing, they said, you know what, you want to play a game? She said, sure, what kind of game do you want to play? She said, let's play the game Rebbe and Chassid. That means a Rebbe and a follower. And he says, okay, you're older. Rabbi Zalman Aaron was older, so he was going to play the Rebbe part. And Rabbi Shalom Dovber, who was younger, was going to play the Chassid part. He said, okay. So the older brother put on his hat, put on a jacket of their father, and he sat down in his, you know, in the special chair. And the other brother came to the door, knocked on the door. He says, "Can I come in?" She says, "Yes." She says, "What would you like?" She says, "I have a problem." He says, "I did something wrong." And according to the Alter Rebbe, according to the first Chabad Rebbe, wrote the Code of Jewish Law. In the Code of Jewish Law, he says it's permissible to do on Shabbos, but then in the Siddur, which was a later. A recollection of his laws, it says you're not allowed to do it on Shabbos. And because I did something wrong on Shabbat, according to one opinion, I'm asking for a method that I can do Teshuvah, repent for what I did wrong. What can I do to be able to repent? So his older brother, who is now the acting Rebbe, gave him a prescription of what he can do to be able to correct what he did wrong. Okay. A few days later, the mother is uh, serving dinner, and his mother asks him, No, so did you ever listen to what the older brother told you to fix the problem? <laughs> so he tells his mother, No. She says, Why not? You accepted that he was the Rebbe, so you have to now follow what the Rebbe tells you to do. So he tells him, No, 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 no. He's not a real Rebbe. <laughs> so the mother asks him, How do you know he's not a real Rebbe? She so says, Because a real Rebbe. In Yiddish, she said, Gita krechts. You know what a krechts means? goes, Oi! feels the pain of the other person first before telling them what to do. Anybody can give out prescriptions. Anybody can say what to do. I can look, but to feel the pain and then tell the person what to do, that's when you, that's a real Rebbe. The same idea we find by Aaron, Moses' brother. 
ethics of our father says, Oye v'sabrius, he loved the creatures and brought them close to Torah. What did he do first? He showed love and then he brought them close to Torah. You can be the biggest preacher, the best orator, and articulate them, write whatever you want. But if there's no love and there's no feeling, it doesn't make a difference. As they say in English, people don't care what you know. People don't, um, what is it? People don't, people don't care what, don't care what you know until they know that you care. There you go. Got it. So this same idea. If you could teach as much Torah as you want, but if you don't show that you care, if it's not out of love, then rebuke is nothing worth. Not only is it nothing, not only doesn't it end, not only doesn't it help, but it can only make things worse. The same idea we can also see when we learned about a few weeks ago with the story of the um, red heifer. The red heifer, one of the attributes of the red heifer that King Solomon said, who's King Solomon was considered the smartest of all people, said, I don't understand about the uh, red heifer. Which is that the red heifer can make one person impure and one person pure. That means the Kohen who sprinkles the person that's impure becomes impure. And the one who sprinkles becomes pure. Why is that? How does that work out? That same blood that makes the individual that was impure pure makes the Kohen impure. And King Solomon said, how does this happen? What does this make sense? How can the same blood that makes somebody pure make somebody else impure? Not only that, one asks, what did the Kohen do wrong? He's helping the Jewish guy become pure. Why is he becoming impure because of it? And it's telling us the same idea. I can never help somebody unless I am part of the problem. I can look down and tell you what to do, but you're not going to listen to me. But if we work together and I say, let myself get dirty as well, then you're going to say, okay, this guy I can listen to. Think about which person becomes a better problem solver. The top down or bottom up? Where are you going to fix the problem? I can talk, you can go to a therapist, and you can sit on the couch and tell you everything what to do. But if he doesn't get, understand, if he doesn't show that he feels and he's really inside the problem, then it's automatically not going to happen. And therefore, the same idea is also. The Kohen, in order for him to purify the other Jew, had to become dirty himself, had to become impure himself, had to be part of the issue, because he should feel the pain of the other Jew, and only then was he able to do it. What does this teach us? Bottom line is what and how we focus our rebuke and critique on any other person. They used to say a very interesting story. There was once this Jew, it's like a little joke. There was once this Jew who was laid off for work for two weeks, sitting at home, didn't have a job. Nobody turned the blind, nobody knew what was going on with him, nobody thought about him. He's decided one day he's going to come to shul. He sits down in shul, and as you can imagine, he doesn't have work for two weeks. He's lost in thought. And it came time in the middle of prayer where it says you have to rise for the Amida. And he's sitting there. All of a sudden, everybody turns around, hey, what are you sitting for? You're supposed to be standing now. But he looks at them and says, for two weeks I'm sitting at home, nobody could care less if I'm standing or sitting. <laughs> All of a sudden, I walk into synagogue, I'm sitting for one minute, everybody's yelling at me. Everybody notices me. What is he saying? You have to show you care about the person, not just about rebuke. It's very easy to tell somebody off, especially if you got the same problem. Because you recognize the problem very well. And that's why it says, Mum Shabach, a blemish that you have, don't tell somebody else. <laughs> but at the same time, you have to make sure it comes from love. Think about it. When, when is the right time? And what we learn from the story, the bottom line is, the first lesson is that rebuke 
and critique has an appropriate time. And that appropriate time is only after that person knows that it will be out of love. After you've done something good for that person, you've helped that person, that person knows it's out of love, then you can show some critique, then you can rebuke or show critique. A second lesson that we can learn from Moses is that there's also a way of giving critique. There's a way of saying it. There's a way of giving rebuke. You know, sometimes a person says, hey, I helped that person yesterday, I can tell them whatever I want. No, just because you helped the person doesn't give you the right to say what you want. Moses helped the Jewish people for 40 years, saved them from everything. But when he tells the Jewish people rebuke, do you remember how he said it? He didn't mention what they did wrong. He mentioned the places that they did something wrong. And if you look, every single one of the five books of Moses start off with a good word. Beratius, the book of Genesis, starts off at the beginning of God creating the heaven and earth. No, it can be better than that. The book of Exodus talks about the counting of the Jewish people, and commentators tell us again, God is enumerating the Jewish people because he loves them. The book of Leviticus begins with God calling Moses in a word of Ayikra, in a terminology of love and an endearment. The book of Numbers begins with counting the Jewish people because, again, God shows that he loved the Jewish people, so he continuously counts them. So, too, the book of Deuteronomy begins with the words, these are the words that Moshe tells the Jewish people. Because he begins with praising the Jewish people. He begins with extolling the Jewish people, recognizing their, virtue, their virtues, their greatness, notwithstanding recognizing that they may have done things wrong. And even when he points out what they did wrong, he doesn't go on to be able to say it in detail at first. He re puts the pointers. He gives them reminders. He says, remember you went to that place, to that place, and allows them to develop on their own and say, yes, what did I do? To recognize that when he is saying something here, he is not here to point out their faults. He is here to help them to correct their past and to give them a light for the future. But even more so, and even a step further, the best way to, mod the best way to give rebuke and to give critique is to model good behavior. You want to be able to show something, somebody else they're doing something wrong? You do what's right and they'll learn from you. Where do we know that from? Joseph and his brothers. Joseph had a problem with his brothers. Joseph believed that his brothers weren't behaving accordingly, that they weren't having the proper respect for their father. Therefore, when their father told Joseph to go check on his brothers, what did Joseph do? He went to check on them, even though he was told that they're out to get you and they're out to kill you. Why did Joseph do that? Why did he put his life in danger? Because Joseph was modeling what it means rebuke. If I want somebody to do something right and behave appropriately, I have to behave that way. And when I behave that way to the fullest extreme, they will then learn. The best way we can teach somebody to do something right is by modeling that behavior. You don't have to say anything. You don't even have to open your mouth. You just do the right behavior and they will already learn to correct their ways. Just like Joseph was willing to go, and that's what happened even later on. How they went later on, then they saw how they have to respect their father because of it. There's a cute little uh, adage that they say, especially the now, during this time. They say a question. They say, why didn't, you know, by the Seder, we ask four questions. Now we ask, why do we eat this? Why do we behave like that? You know, and there's four questions that we ask. Some ask, how come on Tishabov? which we're going to be commemorating next Sunday, you don't have four questions also. Why do we sit on the floor? Why do we fast? Why do we... 
Why do we don't find four questions that the kid asks four questions? So there's a saying they used to say, by the Seder, the father sitting like a king, <laughs> decked out with pillows, beautiful meal in front of them. Everything's all good. When somebody's sitting in their glory and happiness, then you can ask them any question you want. Then you'll get beautiful answers as well. But when a person's sitting on the floor, mourning is loss, then there is no time for questions. That's not a time for questions. Then you've got to pray for that person and beg for that person's mercy. The same idea is also, when you see a person's down, that's not a time to pile up on them and say, you're a low-life lurfer or nothing. Why did you do this? When you see a person's doing something wrong, instead of critiquing them, instead of rebuking them, build them up. Make them feel good. And if you feel you don't have the words to make them feel good because since you are so upset about what they did wrong, pray for them. If it really bothers you what that person's doing wrong, pray for them. Very famous story of Bruri and Rab Meir. Rab Meir was the author of the Mishnah, many of the Mishnahs, and there were people that were making his life miserable. And he wanted to pray that these individuals that were making his life miserable, they should be, find their bitter end. His wife, Bruria, was a very brilliant woman, and she said to him, Rebbeir, if you know your prayers are going to work, instead of praying that they should find their bitter end, pray that they should <laughs> repent. As it says in the verse in Tehillim, Psalm 105, May their sins go, but not the sinners. And he prayed that they repent, and their sins went away, and they became great people. The same thing is as well. We are now right at this time, at the end of exile. We asked enough questions, until when? When's Moshiach going to come? We're ready for the answer. The answer is that Moshiach has to come even before Tisha B'Av. We won't have to fast, there'll be a celebration. But the bottom line is we have to should be with love, with peace, with mercy. And when we look at somebody else, we should be able to look at them with love, and then we'll be able to tell them with love, teach them with love, and care for what their needs are.